Hey everyone, this is your boy Jay, and I'm here to let you know that this episode of the Get Off My Lawn podcast ran a little long, about 2 hours and 15 minutes, so I had to break it up into two parts. Part 1 is coming right at you, and part 2 will be available for download immediately right after you finish this, so check it out. Peace. The following program contains strong language and is intended only for mature audiences. One two 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 one two. Ladies and gentlemen, be boys, be girls, be men, be women. This your boy Jay, aka JC, aka JC, the aka Law T, aka the Hip Hop Taliban, back after a long layoff with another episode of the Get Off My Lawn podcast. And you know what? It just wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be complete without my two, my mellows, my mans. A.B., Professor, where you at? What's good, people? This is A. Boogie with the Ph.D. hoodie, a.k.a. Dr. Belk, a.k.a. the People's Prof, making Benjamin Ryan Tillman roll over in his grave since 2003. Been at home as a stay-at-home, full-time working parent holding down the Little Belks. 
You can find me on socials, ABJRPHD, on Twitter and Instagram. And lastly, because I got something to plug, be on the lookout late 2021, possibly early 2022, but we're going to say late 2021. Co-editor of the forthcoming book for the culture, Hip Hop and the Fight for Social Justice with Dr. Lakita Bennett Bailey being published by the University of Michigan Press. Nice. Out here. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. We're going to get into a little bit more of that because I definitely want to hear some more about it. But we can't forget about our man storming in from the East Coast. Black Cloud, where you at? Ew, see, I'm not as accomplished as my, as my good brother, the professor. I just feel like I'm tired. I'm here. I'm sitting on the side, nodding. Uh, Andre Cole at Andre Cole catch me on Instagram I'll be there a little bit catch me on Twitter I'm there a little bit uh, chilling I'm not writing books unfortunately got some people mad at me about that but I'm here listening to raps and making and bothering people in their Zoom meetings hey <laughs> well I mean it has been it's been probably it hasn't been quite a year since we last uh, got together, but it's been it's been quite a while. So as we, you know, fingers crossed, seem to be emerging from the uh, pandemic. You know, knock on wood, sort of hesitantly looking out the window. Um, how y'all doing? So, uh, Dre, how you been this last, uh, you know, several months since we've been together on the podcast i'm fully vaxxed baby that's how i've been okay i'm i'm, I'm walking around I'm still still wearing a mask yeah but, you know with that with that extra sense of protection was able to hug my mother on mother's day this year um that's right. actually saw my mother and my and my father which is great um I've been maintaining, man. I've, I've, I'm working. You know, I'm doing, still doing some editing work, video editing work, or whatever. And I've decided that going forward, I'm not doing anything that doesn't serve my future as I, as I feel it. So you know, you always write those five year plans or those ten year plans or whatever. Mm. Yeah, if it doesn't, if it doesn't check off one of those boxes, I'm not doing it. Like, amen and ashe. Yes, I'm not doing any of it. Like, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. Like, I'm at the point now where it's like, listen. If nothing else, what I've learned in this last year plus is that life is fleeting. Time is time and life is it's not promised to anybody. Uh, experience it. Take it what you take what you will. Uh, enjoy your freedoms. Uh, 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 kiss your kiss your babies. Hug your people that you can hug and uh, appreciate life. Appreciate every day that you, know, you get. Yeah. Damn. I'm I, sorry. Did I break it all down yeah. just now? <laughs> you didn't bring me down. No, I, you just went deep. I got to get that's my real talk, up, man. Right? Hey, that's what that's what comes with uh, age and wisdom. Man, listen. <laughs> man. Yeah, I mean, I, I I feel you. Years ago, I had a job that I didn't like, and every. Sunday night not even Sunday night like as soon as the sun would start to begin to set on Sunday I would just start to like just get this feeling of like damn it's only 
however many hours till I gotta go in. Now it's Sunday an hour dread. Closer. Yeah. And, and that's so, the thing. There's actually a term for I, it. Sunday I didn't know that. Dread. That's crazy, right? Yeah. And so yeah. then what happened was <clears throat> I quit the job. And then that first Sunday that rolled around and I didn't have to go in that next Monday, the sun was setting and I felt good. The sun kept setting. It suddenly got dark. I still felt good. I went to sleep, woke up on Monday, didn't have the job to go to, but I felt physically different. And that was when I realized that, <clears throat> you know, stress takes a physical toll on you and, and mental. Um, but I became acutely aware of it at that moment. And from that point on, I made the decision that, you know what, I'm not going to take any job where I have to take it home with me. And I'm going to be feeling that level of stress and anxiety about a job. So yeah, props to you for, uh, you know, coming to that realization and you know, you'll be better off for it in the long run. Amen to that. Unfortunately, we've all had to take our jobs home with us this last year or so, but you know how that goes. Yeah. Our, our homes are our jobs now. Yeah. Yeah. But weren't you weren't you doing a lot of work from home uh, pre-pandemic anyway? I was. I was. I was. I mean, I was lucky enough to be able to do that. And um, I just think it's interesting now that everybody everybody's doing it and I'm, I'm noticing the differences in how some people are reacting to the world around them you know people mm -hmm. you know you everybody's starting to we all starting to get you know our eyes open to like having a little bit more freedom and um realizing that you know you i mean there, there's there's stories tons of stories people who you know their jobs are saying oh we're going back to the office people are just quit like nah i'm not doing that i'm not i'm not i'm not going back to doing what i used to do it's a thing so um it's, it's, it's an interesting world we live in right now yeah and i you know with those jobs like the jobs report came out and the numbers are down but they'll fluctuate but i think that a lot of companies are realizing that those some of the jobs they cut they're like oh we don't need those people and so i think that it's going to be a lot different coming out because you have the people who realize I don't have to physically be there to do my job. And then you have the jobs that realize we don't need those people we let go. Um, in one of my one of my jobs uh, in 2019, we had just gotten uh, what well, we they had just purchased um, like the second floor of the building to expand because we needed more office space. But now that everybody's been working from home, they realize, wait a minute, do we really need that much space? And so now when we go back, they've already renegotiated the lease or whatever, and they're not taking that other floor. So it's going to be it's going to be a different world. It's going to be a different world. But um, Professor, your world, I mean, you all slipped right into distance learning like no like full stop. Just boom. One day in the I'll class. I look at it this way. Go ahead. Look at it this way, brothers. Um, March 13th was the last time I did a big thing on campus until just recently. Mm. And that was my 10th wedding anniversary. 
it was also the day that Breonna Taylor was killed. Mm. And then COVID hits hard. And so since that time for the protection of my children, I've been a stay at home, full time working parent. So no spring break in 2020 because I'm preparing to do triage to teach online. No real summer break in 2020 because I'm taking classes through my university to be certified to teach online while also working with my one of my graduates and now my co-author, Dr. Lakita Bennett Bailey, to get this book in the hands of the press. And then no spring break in 2021 because it just didn't make sense to send these young people out all over the state and the southeast and wherever else to then come back and possibly have a super spreader event. Right. So I'm looking forward to a real break and listening to Black Cloud talk about, you know, his his approach. It sounds like you wrote or read my annual report from last year because they asked for a five year plan. And I'm like, yo, I'm 18 years in the game seven years into being a fully promoted professor what you want from me what you want from me that you're not already getting <laughs> right you're so you know and they talk about i'm like are you running up on lebron james talk about we want to see continuous <clears throat> improvement lebron no some people are which is crazy right you want to stay out of that man way and let him cook right so i'm like yo leave me alone and let me cook and so i wrote in that report I, you know what's your five-year plan i said to do whatever pl- whatever makes me most happy and productive Mm. that was it that is my five-year plan as stated right and so the thing about the pandemic is that work has to change think about all the people with physical disabilities who were told they can't work remotely amen and now we find out a lot of people can work remotely including them right Um, Think about all of these events that we would do on campus or in person that have been happening by Zoom and are now more accessible to people, you know, working adults who are going back to school or people with disabilities or, you know, people caring for uh, elders or anything like that. Right. Like a lot of things have to change, not completely, but now that we understand how the accommodations can be made, you should make the accommodations. So work has to change. And one of the things I really ride with this younger generation for, they didn't fall into the trap that was set for us um, unintentionally by our parents. Our parents came up at a time where you can have an education or not, get a decent job, make enough money to maybe buy a home, put some children through college, maybe even, um, and then get a pension when you retire. Not your money's in the market subject to fluctuation, but here's guaranteed income of this much per year for however long. So we sought out stability in the way they sought out stability. And stability is not rewarded, man. Job don't love you. If you die <clears throat> tomorrow, they might send flowers to your family and then they'll advertise your job and hire someone else. And so these young folk don't love the job. They they like, yo, the job is a vehicle for me to live my life, but I'm going to live my life. And I, th- I say that thinking about the people we've lost in the last year or so. Like I think about the Syracuse homie, Ramir Green, class of 97. He died six weeks shy of his 45th birthday. 
cancer. Um, I think about my homie from Maryland, Jonathan England, who died at the age of 47, leaving behind a wife and four children. Also think about my homegirl from my grad program, one of my big sisters in my grad program, Erica Gordon, who died short of her 50th birthday. So we don't know the day nor the hour, but we know statistically we're on the back nine. And I'm going to make it count. Like Toni Morrison said, your real life is with your family and your friends and your loved ones. I'm not saying you you, you sh- cut shorts on the job. You owe it to yourself and to the gig to do a good job. But yo, clock out and go be with your people and live. Because when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to say, man, um, I really wish I spent more time at the job. Exactly. You're not exactly. going to say that, dork. <laughs> exactly. Hey, I mean... I've always made sure to keep at least two jobs in case I got to tell one job, fuck you, I'm out. (laughs) Um, Listen, not a bad policy. I mean, that's what I had to tell uh, the school district out here because they were playing games. They, They didn't lay me off, but then they wouldn't assign me to do anything. So they just stopped paying me and I couldn't collect unemployment because they were like, well, we never fired him. So fortunately I had another job to fall back on and, you know, and uh, with a kid in college, that's not what you want to hear is somebody talking about, we're not going to be paying you. Um, But right, you know, fast forward and it just led me to take this program that I created, just develop it to a greater extent, take it online and, um, just work with schools independently so you know it all worked out and uh you know <laughs> in the words of odb and the school just can suck my dick but you know it, like i said i'm not <laughs> peace I'm, and i'm out <laughs> exactly i'm not taking that that stress man you can't you can't play games i have i have friends our age and you know, pre-COVID, I'd go to their house and you know, you go in the bathroom and there's like prescription pill bottles all over the bathroom. I'm like, damn, like what? You know, hypertension, high blood pressure, this, that, all kinds of things. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to go down that route either. Um, I mean, so, dude, you see what it's done to the hip hop community in the for- in their 40s and 50s. Whew. Like, think about how many people we've lost many of them not related to covid but just accelerated toll of aging and hip-hop doesn't come with a retirement plan and benefits Mm. and we've seen a lot of people you know below 50 or just north of 50 going out and some of it to me seems like excess death like it could have been prevented had people been getting the care that they needed True. Yeah, I mean it. We uh, we were speaking before we came on about DMX and how the last podcast we did was uh, right after the Snoop DMX versus, and and I remember us, you know, talking about him and how um, I don't, I, I'm not going to say he looked different. He looked like he'd been through some rough times. And uh, and I remember one of you saying that, you know, it's good that, you know, he had this opportunity for people to really publicly appreciate him. And this was last year. And um, 
you know, who knew uh, that that he'd be gone. Yeah, that's definitely one of the beauty of verses as well is that, you know, you're actually giving the, giving the flowers to these people who, you know, you may not, you know, you, you appreciate, but you realize how much you appreciate them and they get to see it. And, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm happy that he was able to, you know, receive his flowers in, in time. And, you know, and again, you know, he's an album coming out at the end of the month. So um, May 28th, I believe it's called it's Exodus. And uh, so so hopefully, you know, you know, wow. you know, his family will have something to 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 hold up and, you know, his his legendary status. And, you know, they'll be able to also eat off the, you know, the money, well, the streams. Right. Right. And he got to run those streams um, after verses for a while. Um, and, you know, in the conversation, DMX was 50. He was 50 going on 51. Yeah. And when you've had a problem with substance abuse, alcoholism, you're a recovering user for the rest of your life. And recovery is messy. Um, it's blessed are the people who are able to say I've been clean and sober for this many years and they've never had a relapse those people are blessed because recovery oftentimes looks like struggle you know you have good moments and bad moments and you're one bad day or bad moment away from having a relapse right and the thing about dmx and i think this is part of the reason why so many people took to him he was transparent about it all about being a stick-up kid about his problems with abuse about his problems with relationships um and not to go too far with it so you know let me preface my remarks by saying that but the appeal of malcolm x was that he never hid his failures or struggles. You know, he would say, well, yeah, when I was in prison and some people in the audience would be shocked and he'd be like, yeah, don't be shocked when I tell you I was in prison. That's what America is, prison. But this was a dude who'd done it all. He ran numbers, he was a hustler, sold drugs, did this, did that, but then came out of that to become something greater. Um, you know, DMX would talk about how you don't have to be in church to get the Holy Ghost. I get the Holy Ghost when I'm on stage. And that was his pulpit, right? The audience going way, way back, those were his pews. And you could be imperfect and flawed and in some ways a mess of a person and still be an instrument to deliver a message that will touch others. And that's what he was. And so there are a lot of lot of folk, man, because you figure when he's hitting in the 90s, a lot of hip hoppers right now who were in their 20s weren't on the planet. So they missed it in real time. But their favorite MCs were influenced by X or touched by the people that he touched as an MC. And so they got to see what it was all about, man. With, with DMX, the hype was real. Like that dude was a monster on the mic. Um, and even if that wasn't your bag, you had to respect his gangster and his work ethic because that dude put out three albums in under two years when he came out in the late 90s. And people weren't doing that back then. Not, not like that in hip hop, like three albums in two years. The formula was you might have an album every two years. Right. And that was considered productive. Now, nah, he came out with like 
two albums in six months and then came out with another album a year after the second one dropped and was on other people's songs yeah it was doing features. features yeah he was still doing features he was still out there and he was he was consistently working and that was one of the things about him is that you know i think um working helped him stay focused working helped him in his recovery um and it was to the point where some people would say you know x you gotta chill sometime and then he would say i can't do it i can't do it hmm. and and he would always be and but it was one of the things that it was one of those ways that he was trying to you know keep his demons away and he was doing something that he loved and something that he always wanted to do right and was getting love for it so yes he was and then sort of I'm not gonna say under the radar but um then Black Rob uh he passed but I guess he also had what I what were the did they say what it was like he had some health conditions or something well he he did have um I know he he had suffered some strokes in the last mm. two years he had suffered a couple of strokes at least a couple and he had some kidney problems yeah and that was one of the things i believe and there hasn't been like a i haven't heard of an official cause but i know the kidney he had kidney failure um wow and that was when a lot of people saw um after x passed and there was a video of him in hospital bed he was saying you know his condolences or what have you and how he felt about it that was when he was when he was recovering from a kidney failure episode at that time right um, but it was right. also you know in, in in love to him and to his family and to his friends but you know rob knew like he knew that he was always wilding he was always wilding and it was he was always having fun and it wasn't one of those things like you know um let me measure keep my words measured it wasn't one of those things where you could immediately say oh he has a problem it was him living his life and him having fun and you know not and, and then when you come down to it we don't always as black men take care of ourselves as we should we don't always go to that doctor appointment that we should go to and you know as we get in advanced age some of the stuff that we do can't catch up to us and you know unfortunately you know he had he had great doctors but it was it was too much for his body yeah yeah like kidney problems do a number one you man um and i'm saying this you know knowing people who've gone through dialysis and you have to do that a few times a week and it wears you down man like even if you have a good attitude and you know have a support network it, it wears you down and so black rob resurfaced in the the public conversation around the time that the dmx was basically on his deathbed and everybody was like dang man um what's going on with rob like you know here he is trying to lift up another black man as he needed to be lifted up himself and you know and this this is whenever people see stuff like this conversation always comes back to diddy like, hey, man, um, you know, you, you're living pretty well, but a lot of these people that were with you <clears throat> seem to have problems. Mm. What is going on and where are you on this? Um, and I don't know what Diddy was doing on that, but, 
it, it always comes back to him when people look at bad boy alums and where they are, what they're doing um, and what they don't have given what they gave to the culture. Right. And hip hop doesn't come with a 401k or a pension or benefits. And think about how this works, right? And you see something similar with professional athletes. When hip hoppers hit big, they're teenagers or in their 20s. Mm-hmm. By the time they typically get to their late 20s or early 30s, the game has moved on. So you hit your earning peak when you're still a kid and might not have any idea of the business right or how to spend your money or how to put money aside and they were making so much money you don't even really have to know how to invest you could put it in a high interest um yielding account and live on the interest but you know financial literacy and then there are a whole bunch of charlatans around like it's like my ESPN did that 30 for 30 um, broke. You can take out professional athletes, insert entertainers, and it's the same dynamic. Right. Bad investments. I'm going to open family, a restaurant. Children. That stuff will get you every time. Yep. I'm going to open a steakhouse. Car washes. Yeah. Or your fifth cousin twice removed needs to get an ingrown toenail taken care of and they want 10 million dollars right you know like like just all that kind of foolishness right um and these are cautionary tales but every single time that next head is like well it won't be me and then it's them yeah and so like watching what happened with dmx watching what happened with black rob watch what happened with shock g um it's it's past time to have a conversation about how hip-hop treats its elders and the people who really created the lanes that others are in right now yeah i mean biz marquee is still like they're keeping a lid like every once in a while you'll hear like a big daddy kane or just somebody kind of put some information out there but it's been quite a while where everybody's been kind of like is biz okay is biz like what's going on well the report from kane was encouraging okay because kane said that you know kane posted on ig and said that he'd been talking to biz and biz was doing better and he gave him biz gave him the middle finger the last time they talked so okay you know his sense of humor is back um and so that was really encouraging but biz was also one of those people who tried to get on top of this right like he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and he said they were talking about taking limbs if he didn't make major changes to his lifestyle and then he did that he lost a lot of weight because he was like yo i want to live i don't want to he's like not only do i want to live i want to enjoy a good quality of life and so he was making the sacrifices making the changes but you know, it's still diabetes, man, and it can still hem you up. Yeah. I know I saw Action Bronson on some vice show, and that brother was like 400. He was in, I mean, he was pushing like big pun territory. And then I guess that was a rerun, and I looked him up, and 
you know, he decided he needed to get serious and he dropped a few hundred pounds. And so, um, yeah, there is that. But you mentioned uh, Shock G and um, that was an, another one that was surprising because he was only 57 and um, just kind of, you know, came out of nowhere. But <clears throat> I know that the last time we were together, we, you know, the Snoop and DMX versus gave us a chance to talk about DMX. And I know that once uh, Shock G passed, uh, people were, you know, there were things on the radio, but it would predominantly consisted of Humpty Dance and Do What You Like. And, uh, you know, a couple other songs here or there. Um... And I know it's just, it's been, it's been so long since we've been together. And part of that is because, you know, it took me a cool eight months to get over this nonsense. Okay. Thrill is an okay album. Go listen to Thriller again. Cause that was just, that was just too much. I had to, I had to go, I had to go and reassess (laughs) everything. that was happening <laughs> James Carter why must you be so difficult when somebody I respect <laughs> somebody I get so much inspiration from uh, so much someone who gives me so much aspirational hopes by looking at his Instagram stream uh, Black Cloud said something so so insane but, but did you, you know, listen to it again yeah and it just made me think Maybe, maybe I need to check in on you. Maybe I need to do a wellness <laughs> check on you because maybe you're not all right. I'm all right. You all right. Boo. Got to do you like Riley Freeman. Boo. Listen, man. Put Prince back on. Boo. Prince, I mean, but my, my point in that was that the Off the Wall album was the album. Yeah. I mean, I. The I, Off the Wall album was the album. Like, don't, don't just. Off the Wall album was the album. Thriller, Thriller the had the greater sold. commercial he appeal. Said, off right. the wall was like off the wall, off the wall was the album. blazing hot. You That's said, the reason why everybody bought the Thriller album. You said Thriller was okay. It was That's an okay album. Oh, okay, okay. Um, no, I'm, I'm not gonna, gonna. I'm not gonna be that flagrant. I mean, Thriller was dope. No, you know why? Because me, I always the think wall about was the, the better album. I always think about the songs that I don't necessarily like job with on that on that album. <laughs> That's a hater mentality. What's wrong the, the, with you? No, no, because the ones that didn't age well are like, Ugh. even the Thriller song Ugh, didn't age well. Now I'll listen to it. Every Halloween you'll listen the to it. The Thriller video okay. aged well. Mm, the, the Thriller, thriller video, video well. pumped the up dances, the song. The dances age well. That video yes. age well. <laughs> well, <laughs> the video is still entertaining. Yeah, the video is still entertaining. I'm not, I, uh, I'm not trying to relitigate this, but my point okay, sorry, was sorry. that uh, <laughs> it took you a while for us to get back so we can talk. Yeah, yeah. But when I was listening, the thing that got me was so Shock G passes, and so I turn on Rock the Bells, which I'm increasingly um, between not Heather B. What's the the liar? Uh, I'm sorry, Heather B. Roxanne Shante. <laughs> Between her, oh my god! Just, just the 
how do I say that? I don't, I don't even care about being delicate. The thing about Rock the Bells is they're giving opportunities to some of these MCs who probably don't really have outlets, but contributed to the culture, which I'm fine with. However, they aren't good broadcast radio people. She is not good. Red Man, I love, you know, some of his work, but he's not good. Um, Mr. C, can we please stop with the old school New York screaming over the records? I mean, damn. <laughs> Come on, man. However, again, I digress. After Shock G passed, I turned on Rock the Bells and was hoping that, like, with them being an old school station, that they would you know, have some kind of decent fitting tribute or something or have some people come on and talk about him. And maybe they did. But in the few days um, after he passed, it was the same as like my local commercial stations. And it was pretty much just Humpty Dance, Do What You Like, uh, some I Get Around, like that. And so I had to go back on my own and sort of revisit the uh, Digital Underground catalog. And their first album, Sex Packets, has been in my top 10 um, for, you know, at least, damn, it's 2021, for at least a good 25 years or so. Um, and I think the thing that gets overlooked is that they were paying homage to George Clinton, Parliament, Funkadelic, Bootsy Collins, like um, even, you know, Sly and the Family Stone, Jimi Hendrix, and on and on and on. Whereas a lot of groups were just sampling. And so I went back and looked just to check because unquestionably hip-hop would not be hip-hop it might not even really exist if it were not for James Brown and George Clinton James Brown to a more extreme degree because when I looked up the number of songs that have sampled James Brown the number is just over 14,000 14,000 songs have have some James Brown sample in them and now granted a lot of that is Clyde Stubblefield's drumming and his drum breaks so that accounts for at least like just the funky drummer break is 1700 samples um the funky president the again the drum breaks 914 songs sampled that uh, get up off that thing. Some of James, some of his ad libs are there's at least 356 just from get up off that thing. 410 samples from the payback, and sometimes it's just uh, you know it might be a catchphrase, it might be the drum break, it might be an ad lib, whatever it is, but. Early hip hop, if it weren't for James Brown, I don't know what it would have sounded like. Um, and then, especially getting into the 80s, it would, who knows what it would have been a whole electro 
whatever. I don't know. I mean, now, granted, Africa Bambata, they did, you know, a lot with craft work and those other sounds. But James Brown was that foundational sound. And as you move forward, once Parliament Funkadelic George Clinton's body of work started to get sampled, it was different because people weren't just sampling drum breaks and ad-libs. They were just jacking the whole melody and chorus and bass line, the whole thing. And without those two, I mean, especially the West Coast, the West Coast sound was all about uh, the funk. And without, without George Clinton, I have no idea what it would sound like. I mean, the Chronic, that entire album was basically just a bunch of musicians getting in, replaying P-Funk records and having Snoop put dirty raps on top of them. <laughs> and essentially, and there's so many examples. I mean, there's some producers um, like Eric Sermon. Um, who else? DJ Quick, who's playing beneath us. There are some people who kind of went out of their way to kind of give it their own flavor and put their own spin on, you know, funk sounds. But I think um, Digital Underground was one of the groups, probably the group, that actually came closest to sort of matching that 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 P-Funk feel and vibe. And Shock G, Gregory Jacobs, he was the mastermind behind the whole thing. Um, I mean, he was Shock G, he was MC Blowfish, he was the Piano Man, he was Rackadelic, he was, of course, Humpty Hump. And all these things you could see where he was taking ideas, just taking things from uh, the whole P-Funk collective and then trying to put his own Digital Underground spin on it. And that is uh, one of the things that really elevates Digital Underground in, and especially Shock G uh, in my mind, and especially this first album, Sex Packets. Um, now, what do you, what do you, you two, what are your uh, thoughts, memories, Digital Underground, anything like that, Dolphus? Um, to, to stay in the, in the vibe, um, a name that we have not yet mentioned that deserves mentioning in terms of hip hop is gone too soon and stunningly so mf doom mm, yeah when he passed we didn't even know like it came out that he had died like much earlier and it was like wait a minute he died when so uh, mf doom was 49 passed in october um though we didn't learn about it for some time um like two months went by but when i think about the debt that hip-hop owes to james brown and the parliament funkadelic the first generation of hip-hoppers many of them didn't play instruments 
because they're coming through the public education system at a time when schools are losing funding left and right. Arts programs are getting cut. Music programs are getting cut. And so the production equipment, the turntables, the the TR-808, like, that became the instrument. Yeah. What set Shock G apart was that he was a musician. He came into it as a musician. He was the piano man. He played the keys and he came at the work in a different way. Like when you listen to him break down various styles of MCing, he's doing it from the vantage point of a professional trained musician. Mm. What many people in the hip hop community started doing after the lawsuits and after, you know, James Brown talk about no static and run my money, they started learning how to play these instruments. So if you look at someone like Q-Tip today, Q-Tip plays a bunch of instruments and they'll like, we'll record it, plug it in, and we don't have to do sample clears. It's all us. You look at Timbaland today, he plays instruments. We'll record it live, plug it in. We don't have to get sample clears. When we were talking about an album like 444, what made it unique was that it was real sample heavy, but they have the money to do the clearance. So enter a guy like Shock G, who was clearly influenced by all of these things, but then as a actual musician, he can go in and stretch it in ways that other people at the time could not. Yep. And so that made him <laughs> and the digital underground unique relative to their peers. Last thing I'll say, in the old bit from the Rolling Stone, the writer called him hip-hop's freest spirit and i think that bears emphasis because at the time they came out you you had to be either like real hard or you know something that was going to get like commercial play and i really feel like shock g and the digital underground were like yo we're gonna make some dope music and have fun and whoever's with it is with it and that's just what it is. Um, so they made they reminded people just how fun hip hop could be. And think about what Tupac would become known for, right? You know, so-called gangster rap and shootouts and prison time and all this other stuff. When we got introduced to, to Tupac, he was a dude, he was a roadie in Digital Underground who just seemed like he was having a really good time hanging out with these dudes and they put him on. Yeah. So I, I, when I think about Shock G and I think about the digital underground and their contributions to the culture, um, the musicality of it all, um, and the joy of good music. Yeah. I mean, we have. <laughs> wow. It's funny you mentioned that about Tupac because the first hip-hop concert that I ever went to. My cousin took me to it. It was in Milwaukee, and it was the summer of 80... It must have been 1989. Um, and so, Public Enemy, Run DMC, uh, Digital Underground, uh, The Afros, um, Queen Latif, I believe, and Tupac was, was dancing with them at the time dude 
look at um there was the if you look at the the do what you like video mm-hmm. now that you mention the show look at the do what you like video and look at who's in the video it's everyone you just named <laughs> right and you got these east coast artists these west coast artists and it's all love and everyone's having a good time yeah Did Digital Underground get play on uh, on the rhythm? It did. It did. The, the Digital Underground, well, yeah, Digital Underground got played on the rhythm on our little uh, our little uh, video show back in the 90s. Yeah. Don't talk um, it down. That was big on the yard, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it was, it was small considering, you know, we, you know, the, 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 the this, as far as we can go, our broadcast couldn't go go too far. People know about us. Record companies know about us. I'll tell you that. So we, we we did something that we reported, which is something video shows are supposed to do, report what videos you play. Yeah. And we and and I always reported, and they liked the fact that I always reported because some of those local video shows didn't report, and so you know we would get if we would get some exclusives, we would get stuff early. We would always get the, you know. Um, you know great great music but the thing my my first m- memory of digital underground was my brother brought home a sample a, a white label a white tape like a sales a not a sample it was a promo of do what you like he knew some people at tommy boy he knew some people signed at tommy boy and he brought home a bunch of like they gave him a bunch of promos songs and tapes and some vinyl or whatever and so he was like oh they gave me a bunch of vinyl so we played some stuff and he played Do What You Like. And I was like, what What the hell is this? Like, what are they, what? What are they talking about? <laughs> like, I was like, what, what the, what? And so I was just like, yeah, on to the next one. I think the next one, I forgot what the next one. The next one could have been, uh, honestly, could have been uh, House of Pain or something. Mm. But, right. And so, so then the next time I saw it, I saw them, I saw them, I saw the video. And the video made me kind of say, oh, "Okay, party joint." You know, I don't know. I don't get the guy with the with the Karl Marx nose thing. I don't know what this is about. I don't. I don't get this. I never got. The, I didn't get the Humpty thing at first. And I saw. I was like, "What is going on?" And he makes mention of that always that people didn't understand. Yeah. Um, people him. thought it was two different dudes. Yeah, people thought it was two different dudes, which is still crazy. <laughs> till his till he till his death, people thought he was two different dudes. They're like, "What?" I mean, he um, did have a look-alike. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we all look alike. Um, <laughs> but then when I knew the album was coming, um, my brother got some more promo stuff from Tommy Boy. He got a sex packets poster. Nice. And it was a sex... And see, I think it was a... It must have been a limited edition, though. Tommy Boy couldn't print a bunch of them because it was a nude woman. Oh, it was a nude sister sitting in this sexy pose across the entire poster. You know, it wasn't like a, a, a vertical poster, it was horizontal. And she's sitting and it says sex packets under it with that, with that bright neon blue. Mm-hmm. It was like a purple poster and it just had like their, and it had their logo on it. That's it. It was just nude sister, sex packets in neon blue and their little logo in the corner. And he put it on the wall and i was like man you're gonna get in trouble <laughs> and he and, and so i think he had some kind of thing that little flap like another poster that he could drop down over her boobies because that's what it was really you could see you could see you could see her boobs 
and so right. you could just he could kind of like drop something else down my mom's came in his room um but music wise it was different for me it was because p-funk being from the east coast we you know my my father's a big my father's a big james brown fan uh-huh. right so i always heard james brown so james brown was you know any songs that had James Brown samples in it appealed to me because that's what I grew up on. Like I knew James Brown, and a lot of people on the East Coast, Northeast, um, and the South really liked James Brown. And you got people kind of like in that middle area, like the DMV area, Midwest, West Coast was more P funk. Yeah. So for me, some of those P, some of those P funk sounds, some of those P funk songs were brand new. That that Digital Underground. You know, was sampling or but they they were doing homages, mm-hmm. um, so it was just different for me. It was a different song, and then, you know, I, I got it. It was you know, it was funky. It was different, and when I realized, oh, this is Clinton, you know, because we knew George Clinton, we knew you know, if nothing, we all knew Atomic Dog. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so listening to that, listening to that music was just like it was something different. You know, you knew immediately that it was something different, and you know, these West Coast guys, they weren't they weren't the rough and tumble West Coast guys that the east coast you know we we always thought you know we always like oh that was the that was the cliche that everybody was the nwa yeah on the west coast everybody was nwa everybody was ice tea you know everybody was too short um so when these guys came and they were like the fun guys it was different for me i was like oh okay you know i i, I get it I get i'm it a now. fun guy <laughs> <laughs> i'm a fun i'm a fun guy well uh, uh, i'll tell uh. you i'll tell you this though um, I just pulled these up and as an example of what I was talking about. So the first thing I'll play is, uh, from Funkadelic, not just knee deep. And I'm pretty sure everybody knows this, but I'm going to play a little bit of it and then show you exactly, uh, what I was talking about earlier. Classic, classic, funkadelic, not just knee-deep, George Clinton. Now, we'll see... The monkey uh, wasn't funky, the chicken wasn't <laughs> kicking. Right! Even rhyming. But then, here's uh, sort of a sort of traditional hip-hop uh, interpretation, which is, this is from The Chronic. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah.
Buster Buster Where the fuck you at? Can't scrap a lick So I know you got your gats Your dick on hard From fucking your road dogs The hood you threw up with Niggas you grew up with Don't even respect your ass That's why it's time for the doctor To check your ass, nigga Alright, so You know, everybody's heard the chronic And fuck with Dre Day And everybody's celebrating He slowed it down He brought in a live band um, But he clearly just jacked the song And it's always why it's hard for me to give to put Dr. Dre high up on my list of top producers because I mean he's in there of course but he's not even like Q-Tip, Large Professor, some of these guys are finding really obscure uh parts of different songs and acid jazz things and funk things and obscure European funk tracks and then bringing it in and looping it. Dr. Dre was like, yeah, whatever. Or they take the track and do something else. Like Marley Maul was talking about how they made the bridge and he he ran the beat backwards. Yeah, there's things you can do, but that wasn't that wasn't uh, predominant because here goes X-Clan, Funkin' Lesson. Freedom or death, you shall all be moved. Vanglorious, this is protected by the red, the black, and the green with the key city. Abracadabra, a la baby professor. All hail Funkin' Lesson. Sweet tongue grand right of scrolls. Now behold, let the legend unfold. Born in a cosmos where no time and space do exist. Live in the midst of the chaos. Mortals label me as a logical, mythological. They couldn't comprehend when I brought the word. A stick called verb, a black still nerve. Teaching those actors and actresses who write a couple lines on what black is. Really? Then they label me a sin. When a brother just speaks what's within. I guess I'm blacker than the shadow in the darkest alley that they're always scared to go in. Boo! I don't think Brother Jay gets enough props, but... And that I love that song, but again, we just sort of... He had take, bars. Oh, he has did. bars. Yeah. Yeah, I hope he... Yeah, I'm going to need to dig up, because I, I think he's done some solo work that I'm not too familiar with. So... Yes. Yeah. So again, X-Clan um, took Not Just Knee Deep, and then... Ice Cube in his, this is way after he had already started to fall off. He just decided to throw this one out there. Bop gun. So wide you can't get around it. So low you can't get under it. So high you can't get over it. Oh, that's all I can stand. I hated that song when I had it on the cassette because then I'd have to fast forward past it and burn up my batteries. But again, just... just, <laughs> just I hated that song too. Oh, I man. Hated that and it was song. so long. It was like five, six minutes long. And that's a long... That's a lot of double A power. I mean, I saw George Clinton in the Parliament Funkadelic my last year at the University of Maryland. And they played Knee Deep for about 10 minutes. Yeah. So I get where they're coming from with that, right? But I look I listen to these tracks and I listen to what they did with the source material. And 
it's like the sample was the most prominent part of the track and they added other things right maybe they slowed it down or they sped it up they put um some drums under it or they added some different sounds but by and large you could immediately pick out the source material Mm -hmm. um it's not like they were doing things like you know the the rizzo or pete rock or dilla primo ninth wonder um some of those producers who you know pete rock would take an ahmad jamal piano riff and make a whole track like if you listen to the world is yours with nas Mm -hmm. and you listen to the ahmad jamal track that they sampled it was just one little note buried deep in the song Mm -hmm. made a whole track you know p-rock would do that dilla would do that um I, like if you look at the track that the ninth wonder did for uh, rhapsody where they it was kind of like an homage to the wu-tang clan in particular to jizza and then they brought the jizza on the track um rizza did something really interesting with that track ninth wonder goes back gets the original track and brings back the original sound but then adds some things to it right and that's where the creativity comes in you listen to some of these and they were just kind of mailing it in but it lets you know where the technology was or where they cre- their creativity was at the time and so when you're comparing digital underground to the stuff that was coming out then mm-hmm. you could see just how far ahead of everyone they were even if people don't give them the props they should yeah and of course the most famous uh jacking of uh knee deep is, uh, yeah And it's funny because I had sort of the opposite reaction. It's that, like, I was already into hip-hop, but when that dropped, and I was like, oh, shit, who are these guys? And I was like, wait, they're from the East Coast? But, yeah, me, myself, and I, and I have a clip here of De La. It's actually interesting because it's De La just speaking a little bit about uh parliament and funkadelic and then it goes into shock g saying a little something so i'm going to play this here it's only about 45 seconds apply to ourselves so even beyond just rapping just being a listener of it and just being a true fan of just things that didn't follow the norm you know parliament and funkadelic was just the king the kings of that you want to talk about hip-hop and p-funk bernie was the first one doing them gangster string lines that became so known for the ghetto boys, the hard, the real hard hip-hop artists who got the sinister strings that sound like the world's coming to an end, like in Murder Was the Case that they gave me. Gangsters love Parliament and Funkadelic. 
even slipped some ice cube in there at the end. But to Adolphus's point, that Shock G um, was a trained, a classically trained uh, musician. And so he, I, I saw that clip that you were talking about where he was comparing uh, different MCs, rhyme styles to um, other people in popular culture, whether it be political figures or um, just different cadences. And even there, when he's talking about the, uh, that whole G-Funk sound, that comes straight, again, from Parliament Funkadelic from Bernie Worrell, uh, who's just incredible keyboard work, like on Flashlight. The bass in that is actually him on the keyboards and not like a bass guitar. Um, and so G-Funk, that whole, that whole sound just like, I hope Bernie got... I hope he got uh, some royalties and some money, but um, I guess before we get back to Digital Underground, you have James Brown, who just had that foundational sound, and just from all the stories you hear from all the musicians about how strict and regimented he was um, with everything from their... their, uh, practice to their performance to their appearance and George Clinton he came up uh, with a doo-wop group and then they wanted to be a part of Motown and then when they went to Motown with his group the parliaments they said uh you know you sound a little too much like the four tops or the miracles or whatever and so that didn't happen but then ultimately as times, you know, shifted and things started moving into a whole different direction with counterculture and hippies and Jimi Hendrix and Sly and the Family Stone and all that. He just began to, you know, change and morph his style. But he still, he still brought with him that whole, uh, that Motown background and uh, that sensibility. And then the beautiful part is that as things evolved, he started to get some musicians who worked with James Brown. So he got, you know, Fred Wesley uh, on trombone. He got Maceo Parker on, from the sax, took them from the JBs. But then probably most critically and most importantly, he got Bootsy Collins on bass. And when he got Bootsy them, was sixteen when he started playing with them, man. Man, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's just this the talent pulling those people in, and then and then George Clinton. The difference is, he said he said, you know what, be you, do your thing, because the whole Bootsy was like, you know what, James Brown was so regimented. And so restrictive that he couldn't really do what he wanted to do. Comes to George Clinton, P Funk, do what you want, do what you want. And in letting all those master musicians do their own thing, you ended up with this incredible sound. And then, you know, <laughs> clearly drugs were playing a huge part in all this. And. <laughs> I mean, you had George Clinton, well, <laughs> aka Mr. Wiggles, aka 
<laughs> Dr. Funkenstein, aka Starchild. <laughs> you had Bootzilla, Void of Funk. <laughs> right. I will never dance. And yeah, Aqua Boogie doesn't get enough love. Oh, oh no, it does not. Why should I hold my breath? <laughs> Fearing that I oh, might choke. <laughs> it is. I mean, you can go back and listen to some of those albums, and if you've never heard them, they still sound futuristic. And we're in. Oh no, they still slap. I mean, oh. but you talk about defying convention, right? Like, mm-hmm. was that was that Dave in the segment that you played talking about Parliament? Uh, yeah, I believe it was. Yeah, he was like, they didn't follow the norm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the bridge for the conversation, not following the norm. Yep. You know, all those other like it first first off, the strength and influence of Motown. Yes. You know, coming from North Carolina, George Clinton wanting to be like Motown. Coming from Jamaica, Bob Marley wanting to be like Motown, right? Getting rejected and then finding and creating a new lane. So there's that. But you know, James, drop it on the four. George, mm-hmm. like, we're gonna drop it on the one. One. Yes. Not following convention and just rolling with it. Like you going whatever you play, you gonna feel it. Yeah. And go hard. Yeah. I mean I think there is definitely when we start talking about people who don't like I'm not gonna say that George Clinton isn't appreciated fully, but he's still alive. And like, I know they went, P- Parliament and Funkadelic went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Bootsy Collins is still alive, but, I mean, just in in preparing for, for this uh, podcast, I was just going back, listening to some of their material, and to your point, in the Digital Underground um, catalog, especially in Sex Packets, they were using samples and they were in in a lot of cases they were using them pretty blatantly um they weren't doing what you were talking about where they take sort of obscure bits and pieces but the same a lot of the samples that they were using were from more obscure uh parliament albums which i think is the part that appealed to me because my dad would play those and so i would hear it and then kind of recognize it and actually it was what you know he kind of would like if he was passing by my room and heard something playing if it had that p-funk in it he would stop and then once they started all that cursing then he'd be like all right turn that turn that rap crap off and (laughs) i don't want to hear it but you know (laughs) it is what it is so what i wanted to do and we'll see what uh time permits is go through some of sex packets and really just kind of take a look at what they sampled and how they flipped it and how they actually um, made it their own. But the interesting, another tie-in is that Digital Underground was on Tommy Boy. Um, De La Soul was also on Tommy Boy. So Three Feet High and Rising drops in like 88. And the reason why it's still not, you know, on iTunes or whatever streaming service, or maybe it is, but the reason why there's been that big dispute is because all of the samples that were on that album 
Prince Paul like went wild. And all of those, you know, whatever clearance rights they worked out back in the 80s didn't account for digital because who the hell knew? And so in order for them to re-release it, they'd have to renegotiate all those um, samples and clear all those things and it'd just be an astronomical cost for an old album. Well, anyway, after Three Feet High and Rising hit, then the record companies were starting to get hip to the fact that they could charge um, for these samples, that this old material is worth something. And they started to charge more money, and then artists had a say-so, which is why I believe it's Charday or... Is somebody's car alarm going off? I don't think that's here. Is that... Maybe it, maybe it is here. Is that one of you two? No, my mic's off. Oh. Yeah, my mic was muted as well. Huh. Oh, maybe it's here. I guess I should take care of my own uh, <laughs> sound situation. <laughs> yeah, you might want to turn off the lights and peek out the blinds. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, back to our <laughs> these ghetto distractions. Um, anyway, so once the artist became hip, like I think it's either Charday and or Prince who were just like, no, you're not sampling my material. Um, Tracy Chapman. Tracy Chapman? Tracy Chapman got into it with um, Nicki Minaj and ended up winning in court about not clearing a sample. And for, for the audience or for listeners, when you get the sample clear, you have to provide them money up front and then you have to give them a percentage of the sales. Yeah. So, you know that's when that can be cost prohibitive to certain people right so that's why when i look at the the up-and-coming producers they're doing a lot more of their own work and i think um in some respects somebody else in hip-hop that doesn't get enough props uh manny fresh yeah. you know manny fresh was doing that stuff himself right and there's more money to be kept if you don't have to clear the samples I look at another producer, you know, younger cat who's kind of getting some years on him now, Metro Boomin. You don't have to pay out all this money if you're making the entire beat yourself. And that's what people started doing. Yeah. Well, th then if the, um, th and the reason why I brought up, you know, Charday, uh is because apparently, you know, the artist can have a say so and say no. You're not going to sample. So anyway, apparently Tommy Boy was real uh, gun shy when Digital Underground came to them with this album that was full of all these Parliament Funkadelic and all these other samples. Um, and one thing that helped it, and so the album actually got delayed by about a year because it didn't drop till 1990 or 89, 90. Um... But one of the things that helped them was George Clinton and Bootsy Collins actually co-signed on their work. And so they liked what they heard. They liked the direction they were taking it, uh, the music. And then also there was the fact that um, they knew they would get paid. But 
they liked what they were doing. So they co-signed on it. And then that sort of uh, paved the way for uh, the album to get released. So six packets. Uh, let's see. What I'll do is I'll play, I'll play the Parliament original. And it'll be pretty clear uh, which song uh, from Sex Packets this is a take on. You're ready for me, now gather round I'm the new fool in town And my sound's laid down by the underground I drink a bottle of Hennessy you got on your shelf So just let me introduce myself My name is Humpty Pronounced with the Humpty Yo ladies, oh how I like to funk thee And all the rappers in the top ten Please allow me to bump thee I'm stepping tall, y'all And just like Humpty Dumpty You're gonna fall when the stereos pump me I like the rhyme, I like my beats funky I'm spunky, I like my oatmeal lumpy I'm sick with this Straight gangster Mac But sometimes I get ridiculous I'll eat up all your crackers and your licorice Oh, yo, fat girl Come here, are you ticklish? Yeah, I called you fat Look at me, I'm skinny It never stopped me from getting busy I'm a freak I like the girls with the boom I once got busy in a Burger King bathroom I'm crazy Allow me to amaze thee They say I'm ugly, but it just don't faze me I'm still getting in the girls' pants And I even got my own dance So they took from the original song, uh, Let's Play House by Parliament, from an album, Trombipulation, which was one of the later uh, Parliament albums. And that was a pretty blatant ripoff. Their only saving grace was that, you know, very few people uh, had heard that album because by that point, Parliament was starting to have a lot of legal problems and uh, monetary money issues and lawsuits and all kinds of things were happening. So um, they took that, but again, flipped it. The Humpty Dance, you know, I think I was with Dre where I didn't get it. Like, who's this client? Like, is this the new Flavor Flav hype man? Like, what exactly is going on here? Um, 
But then when you start to look at it in the context of Parliament and Funkadelic, in which when I heard the, the I heard Humpty Dance before I heard the album, so I didn't understand that this is a whole big thing they were doing. I just saw Humpty Hump. Um, but when you look at it in the context of all the characters that George Clinton developed and uh, portrayed, then it starts to make sense. And so looking at the full scope of what they did, um, it's very evident where their influences came from. And, and that, that song is very well mixed as well. It's one thing I noticed recently about, um, especially with the passing of Shock G, is you know everybody's playing um, the Humpty Dance. And I was realizing how well that song is mixed. It's really, and that's one thing about P-Funk is that some of the people who sample or use P-Funk records, if you if you mix it well, which was what Dr. Dre does, like Dr. Dre makes all of his songs sound incredibly big, the drops are right, the beats sound incredible, the mixes are incredible, which is why all of his P-Funk records sound really good. That song, Humpty Dance, is mixed incredibly well, and it's, I guess it's because... You know, Shock G was a musician and he knew when to bring in instruments, when to take them out, when to drop the beat, when to when to when to bring that bass line in. And one of the beauties of the song is him make putting in listen to the bass line. <laughs> him doing that in the song, I always remember to listen to the <laughs> It's just incredible. Yeah. Yo, like now now remember radio matters at this point mm-hmm. media markets matter at this point so my first time hearing this track it wasn't on the radio mm. it was video music box with ralph mcdaniels ralph mcdaniels was responsible for putting nyc on the hip-hop from outside the New York metropolitan area. That was where I first heard NWA. That was where I first heard Common, The Roots, and all these other people around the country from outside the New York metro, um, especially Outkast. So when you get the video, you're getting the track and all of the intended visuals Mm -hmm. to come along with it. So you see the group, you see the gimmick, right? And so it was visually stunning. The lyrics were insane when he starts talking about, you know, getting busy in a Burger King bathroom <laughs> and all this kind of stuff, right? He's he's the jokester of hip hop, right? Like the clown prince of hip hop. And like Dre was talking about, like, how many records do you get the extended beat? Yeah. And they gave you the extended beat at the end and they just let you ride with it, right? And again, it's that that musicality. Um, funny story real quick. So my wife works in sports television. Um, she used to go on the road a lot more than she does now, though she still goes out on the road occasionally. And she's, you know, at some big fancy hotel and she goes to the lobby and there's this dude chilling in, on the piano in the lobby and just going in, playing all kind of stuff. And no one's paying attention to him but her. It was Shock G. Oh. And that piano riff 
on you know one of the other tracks we might get to this at a point but he goes from like i'll be sure to salt and pepper yes to all these different things right yeah and then on the end of these tracks they give you the extended beat because it's intended to be a party record right like yeah. they're not making it just for the radio like he would even say okay you know if you're playing this on the radio you could begin your fade out here yeah okay now that we've taken care of that let's keep party and that's what you got with humpty dance right you the video invited you to the party and it was lit yeah it's funny because there's well a couple things one it was the first time i ever heard samoans get shouted out samoans do the humpty hump and, uh, before this is pre booyah yes. tribe, and yes. and it took me several years after this song came out to understand. In the '69, Humpty Nosel took a your rear. So, oh, behave! <laughs> I'm just saying, maybe I was a little slow on the uptake. Maybe I was a little sheltered. I didn't know, but real uh, cheeky. Oh, behave! 